0: during the revolution (coughs) the real political idea was death to tyranny in the american revolution don't tread on me nobody tell me what to do this greatly affected the ideas of religion the types of church structure church politics were adopted that a church the democratic church that people should be free to vote or choose their pastor or remove their pastor at will. This was different than the hierarchy that was in the Presbyterian Church which had a system of bishops who would appoint pastors for a church and it was more a, it's called a centralized government. The Roman Catholic Church has a centralized government where you have the Pope and uh, cardinals and then bishops and then priests and it's just a <clears throat> a strong system. Now some people would think you know the centralized system what a great way to prevent error. It's a top-down approach where it's you the leadership maintains freedom from error and you just you keep passing it down policing error all the way down. It's a safeguard but what do you do when the centralized leadership becomes corrupt and is, believes, deception. Then the deception trickles all the way down. William Carey, another idea that he brought to India was the idea of religious freedom. The idea that, behind this is that we're all prone to error. And unless you're free to convert, you can't freely choose or search for truth. <clears throat> So with the Catholic Church they tried to police error from the top down through cardinals and bishops but that when that leadership went astray well who down here could fix it or break out of it? Same problem is when government tries to solve economic problems. Because you're elected because you have power if you do a bad job in government there's no one to release you. In a free market economy with competition then if you are doing a lousy job or producing an inferior product, people will just go elsewhere. When you have strong centralized government like they tried in in Russia and communism, then you're stuck. You can't go anywhere else for this competition. It eliminates competition. And so if, if a priest is lazy, doing lazy sermons, teaching, heresy and you're faithful to the presbyterian tradition you're stuck the united states in combined with this revolution they reacted against centralized government tyranny they wanted every man to be king they wanted to be some of their slogans were life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it was based on the rights of the individual to pursue and seek truth they These ideas became, combined with the religious ideas of the time, that each man should be free to pursue truth, which went back to Martin Luther's ideal of the priesthood-of-all-believer, which had, depending on the denomination, kind of fallen out. There's always this problem of how do you try to prevent error? Do you try to just really grind it into people the truth? Because you give people freedom, what are they going to believe? so america contrary to canada canada went more along the strong leadership government order america went more on the freedom there's logan was no creed but the bible so in other words there was no council in the church history no church authority you had the right to come to your bible and believe whatever you saw in the bible it was like there was a free market principle applied to religion. And this started applying to different denominations where the person in the pew was the head of each church and however they voted, that was the pastor they put in place. This had some benefits in that it allowed people, put the responsibility on them to go back to God's word, to seek for truth. It also, if people didn't like the idea of errors or things that were being taught in the church, or if there was a, a pastor who was corrupt, you could just go start your own church. You were free to do that, which had benefits in that it had a safe the, uh, valve for error, but it also created a bunch of wacko religious ideas, and it was in this idea of everybody gets to decide the Bible for themselves, that Mormonism sprang up, um, different utopian societies, eventually the Seventh-day Adventists came out of the Millerites, Uh, eschatologies changed, there was just such a break with the historic tradition of the church where the church had wrestled with things and formulated ideas and There would be people denying the deity of Christ or the Trinity because they don't see the name Trinity in the Bible or denying the substitutionary atonement because you don't see that in the Bible. The problem is is that the Bible is a complex book and when you come to it with just your fallible perception, your prone to error perception, you're going to see in the Bible what you want to see. Especially when you bring a spirit of pride. Uh, James warns very seriously against this. The wisdom that is from above is pure, gentle, willing to yield. To see humility, you've got to have, see truth, you have to have it coupled with humility. There's no perfect system that guarantees truth for the church. But remember how I said it was a very dark time for Christianity? Well, spirit poured out on the nation originally through the work of circuit preachers who were Methodists, who would, single men who would travel sometimes a circuit of 500 miles, they would come to many communities and they would try to do it every other, uh, once a month, go with a partner who would go every other week. So that twice a month you would get someone into your frontier community who would preach the gospel to you and pray with you or perform weddings, whatever you may need. The social life in the frontier was very hard, and so people needed an excuse to get together. And when these circuit riders would come through, it would provide uh, reason to get together, and it would turn into a party. And out of this came the camp meeting, which would go on for days. One of the first revivals that just burst onto the scene was in Cane Ridge, Kentucky in 1801, that where God's Spirit came on this, it was, the group of people grew to about 20,000 people, there were several preachers preaching, and as God's Spirit came, us fallible, broken people responded in different ways. One thing is, there was an extreme conviction of sin. You remember how in the Bible, whenever an angel would come to them, or When Ezekiel or Isaiah would have a vision of God, they would fall down on their face and say, I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, this was happening to people. As God's Spirit came, they were filled with such a conviction of sin. Sometimes they'd faint. Sometimes they'd collapse. There was also some really weird other physical manifestations that happened. Head jerking sometimes. Oh, I shouldn't do that. That would be so hard that if a woman had long hair, it would actually make the crack of a bullwhip. There would be laughing sometimes with joy sometimes with hysteria sometimes there would be barking like dogs so i don't know exactly what's happening if if there was just a fragile frontier mindset that when this burst of emotion because the frontier person was always hampering down his emotions you couldn't just be emotional you had to be tough on the frontier so when you suddenly are in touch with your emotions something goes crazy or maybe there was some type of demonic Um, what's the word, possession of these people that went crazy in sensing God's spirit so close and that was what was causing it. Whatever the case, it was a genuine work of God that just completely spread through America. Something, in the first great awakening, it was, there was a high view of God's sovereignty, and a real view of how salvation had to be a supernatural work of God. And you had to wait and see if you claimed to have been converted, the church would give you a test period to see well have you are you bearing the fruits of the spirit. For them conversion was a supernatural act of God. It was a new birth that you needed to see if it was genuine, because it wasn't enough for a person just to say, I believe, and let's bring you into a church. They needed to see, has your life actually been changed, based on a very strong Calvinist perceptions, The Second Great Awakening was primarily led by Methodists, who were more of the John Wesley persuasion, who thought that Calvinism led to apathy, which it had in many areas. Uh, there's no theological doctrine that will produce spiritual life in you. It all comes down to whether you actually have the Spirit of God in you. That's why you will have Spirit-filled Wesleyans and you'll have Spirit-filled Calvinists and it's not because they're Calvinists, it's not because they're Wesleyan, it's because they have God's Spirit in them. And when God's Spirit fills you, He changes your heart but He doesn't immediately fix your mind. You can still have, you still are prone to the same errors of mistakes. You can never make the mistake of seeing this man's spirit filled, everything he says must be inspired. People who do that have get led into heresy. We always need to be measuring what people, no matter how much their life bears the fruit of the spirit, we always have to be testing what they have to say against God's word. But anyway, so this was more of a Methodist revival. Now Charles Finney was a Presbyterian, a lawyer very popular but kind of a haughty young man people were praying for him in 1921 i think he was about 29 he wrestled with god and he had a dramatic conversion that changed him the next morning a, man, a client came in and said i'm here for the appointment and charles finney said i cannot plead your case because my mission now is to plead the case of jesus christ and he took a revival Wherever he went, preaching, not just trying to reach the emotions and stir up people, but just a very calculating, legal case of why you did not have the right over your soul. You did not have the right to rebel against the creator. You needed to... Jesus had made a way of salvation. People said that when Finney's eyes looked out at you, you felt like you were being slowly rotated over the pit of hell. (laughs) He... One sermon he said, I'm going to give you guys one minute to decide to, for Jesus Christ and everybody who stands up is committed to Christ and everyone who remains seated has is against Christ. And this, the audience just sat. They weren't used to audience participation. So he said, you've all condemned your souls to hell and marched out of the building. The next, morning, the next day he came back and the church was packed. <laughs> people <laughs> wanted a second chance, and he hammered them away with the gospel. Finney has had more impact on pre-Civil War America than any other religious leader, and he's a very controversial figure today. Some people see him as completely a false prophet. Other people see him as a very genuine man of God. Charles Finney denied the substitutionary atonement because he denied original sin. He denied that humans had a sin uh, sin nature that they inherited from Adam. That they actually, the Calvinists believed that we had a sin nature that wasn't our fault, but it was, we're stuck with, and we needed God to bring a a new life. Finney believed that we had just a habit to sin, but he thought if we had a broken nature, it gave us an excuse for why we weren't obeying God. So he said, you don't have an excuse. You do have the power to submit to God. That was his belief. Whereas a Calvinist would say, you do not have the power to submit to God until you have the new birth. He would say, you have the power to submit to God right now. And a very, he had it legally mapped out through scripture. He proudly said that he only read the Bible. He didn't get into the complex theologies of Calvin or Luther, just him and his Bible. This changed his idea of revival. He said, this is like a science. Before, a revival was seen as a supernatural act of God that you prayed for, but when it came, you just gave the glory to God. Finney started to see revival as, if you sowed the seeds, you you could guarantee a crop that would come. He told preachers, if you do not have revival in community, it's your fault. He implemented new means like the anxious bench, where if someone was waffling, they could come sit at the fronts where they would receive pressure. This kind of led to the altar call. He, a new measure was the prolonged meetings that would go for on for days, so that you could hammer them a little harder each day. He would provide counseling meetings with people after, where he would just continue to urge those who are waffling and really pressure them to make a commitment. And he also got involved women to pray in the meetings. These were all scandalous ideas. Lyman Beecher was one of the leaders in the (laughs) second great awakening, but he was a Calvinist. But he moderated his Calvinist principles a little bit. He thought God's spirit would at least respond to certain things like the preaching of his word and prayer. So it was still a sovereign work of God, but God would respond to this, which made some old-school Calvinist nervous that they were already giving us that much influence. There was also another revivalist named Asa Nettleton who was also of the Calvinist persuasion, Presbyterian. They called Finney to New York to have a meeting where they were going to question him on his theology and question him on his controversial new measures. Well, Finney was able to convince... Lyman Beecher a little bit, but Lyman Beecher told him, if you try to bring one of your revivals to Boston, I will meet you at the border and fight you all the way. But he ended up inviting Finney to have a meeting there. Aisle Nettleton resi- insisted, you're, you're teaching heresy, I cannot support that. Finney very humbly in his biography later on said, that was the moment the spirit left Aisle Nettleton when he refused, <laughs> when he refused me. Finney just is a very fascinating character because someone could come in here and portray a side of Finney and you go, what did anybody ever see in the guy? He's proud, arrogant, obnoxious unwilling to change unteachable but then there's there's other sides of Finney that showed a man who would spend hours in prayer spend hours in God's word there was an experience he had in Boston in 1942 where he was really seeking the second blessing. John Wesley had taught a form of perfectionism where God wanted to sanctify your life this side of heaven, whereas Calvinists said you're going to be stuck with the sin nature your whole life. Wesley said, no, God, the new birth is powerful enough to try to bring freedom and victory into your life. But they, in order to achieve this perfection, would sometimes have to redefine sin so that it only included conscious, willful sins. where Calvinists had a much deeper view of sin and were always on guard on it. And the Calvinists thought that this will keep us always dependent on God. And if we ever think that we've actually achieved conquering of sin, then it's going to make us proud and arrogant. Which actually happened to the president of the college that finney was in oberlin college he believed to he said he had achieved the second blessing and he was now comp- cleansed from all known sin and he became stuck up controversial just impossible to live with because he was so sanctified <laughs> <laughs> the rest of his life but in 19 in 1842 i'm going to just throw in you know wrong dates every once in a while but this one's Correct, correct. 1842, he was in Boston seeking this second blessing, wanting to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And for him, he knew it involved surrender. He had to surrender his wife, his choices, his future, all of that. And his wife was sick at the time. And he just was really struggling with this idea of being able to surrender his wife to God. And for days, he just wrestled with God in prayer until he finally came to a point that... He so trusted God's moral nature and God's character that if God decided something for him, he would be a fool to want anything else. And so that he actually he came to a point that if God decided to send me to hell, I would trust that God had a good reason for it. And shortly after, his wife died. He felt though that there was a, a new a blessing there. He and his new wife Elizabeth went to England <laughs> for a revival, kind of scandalized the people there with his new measures, but the numbers were there. It's very hard. God says don't judge anything before it's time because the the end will reveal the the truth. And so when we look at the numbers of D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, Joel Osteen, (laughs) (laughs) not that they're all in the same category, (laughs) we can't just go by the numbers. But Vinnie was changing the nature of what it meant to become a Christian and what it meant to be, how to have a revival. And these ideas changed, continued to change with Moody and with Billy Sunday. And subtly the change, there was more a focus on man's methods, what worked, what drew crowds in, what kind of emotional appeals, what kind of music set it, and they tried to study what was the best way to change people, to bring them to a point of submitting to God. Whereas before it was only God can change it, we just have to be faithful to preach the truth regardless of the results. (coughs) Uh, Joseph Smith was a rascal. (laughs) One of his jobs was to communicate with ghosts and You could hire Joseph Smith to be led around by a ghost who would take you to where buried treasure was and you would pay him start digging while Joseph Smith fled (laughs) because there wasn't there. But anyway, Joseph Smith received a vision from the angel Moroni who told him that Jesus Christ had visited North America, that the native tribes were the lost tribes of Israel, and that Jesus came and set up a true church here, but it had died out, and the church was apostate everywhere, and God wanted Joseph Smith to bring in tongues and a new revival of God's spirit, and to be his prophet for god he also told him where these plates were buried that were written by some prophet way back and joseph smith through a process of div- divination was able to translate these plates into the english and uh produce the book of mormon based on this and he in this society where there is no strong central government where there's such a distrust of any strong denomination, Roman Catholicism, and that's pounded into you, no tyranny, religious or political, where do you turn? And so people would often turn to strong charismatic leaders who were confident. And that was one reason they joined the Mormon church. There was a fascinating story, Peter Cartwright was a Methodist revivalist, and he met Joseph Smith, and he recorded this instance in his biography, he said Joseph Smith came to him and just laid on the flattery so thick saying, you know, the Methodists of all the denominations—they're the closest thing to the true church. They're a little short, but I would love for you to bring, join me with your Methodists. Come, come with me, and I'll show you people who speak in tongues. I'll show you healings. I'll show you the miracles that we've had, the prophecies. And he showed them from Scripture the passages that applied. And Peter Carvage, is it just a second. Let me tell you my experience with Mormons. I was pre- I was leading a revival meeting and about 20 or 30 Mormons came into the group and during the lunch break just started singing and everybody was so drawn to the beautiful sounds that they were making but one of the elderly women just collapsed into her husband's arms and the husband said she's just having a trance she's gonna start speaking in tongues and i'll translate for her so she started babbling and Peter Cartwright went up to her and said, Stop, I don't want any of that in this meeting. And she opened her eyes and looked at him and said, God has a message. I have a message to deliver to you from God. And he said, If, if God only is going to speak through a decrepit old woman, I'm not interested. They weren't real tactful. And he commanded her to leave. The husband, the, the Mormon husband, got angry and started, said, You don't talk about my wife like that. And Peter Cartwright said, I bet you are a thief and that if you pulled up your shirt, we'd see evidence of you being whipped. It was just a guess. But other people said, hey, yeah, I recognize you. You are that thief that was horse-whipped. And he fled the meeting. Just a, a little snapshot of the conflict there was between Mormons and Methodists. There was also a man by the name of William Miller in, who had fought in the War of 1812. He was convinced by his study of the Bible that Jesus Christ was going to return in 18—I think 1843. He had a publicist who I think published something like 5 million pieces of tracts, articles related to William Miller. So he acquired a huge following. And on the night that Jesus was supposed to come, they got their white robes, they waited on rooftops, and Jesus never came, and they were devastated. But out of this group of the Millerites came the Seventh-day Adventists. Ellen G. White believed that Jesus had returned, but only spiritually then, and that He wanted her to produce a true body that moved worship back to Saturday where it was supposed to. Also at this time, there was uh, optimism. I talked about the post-millennial hope, but other people thought that there's other ways we can usher in this utopia, and one of the best ways to usher in this utopia was through communal societies, and there were several societies. A man by the name of John Humphrey, I think it's Noez, N-O-Y-E-S, Noise, Noez. He also claimed to have achieved perfection, was preaching this view, and he said that if you joined his his group, you could we could achieve utopia, we could bring God's kingdom on earth. But one of the ways you showed your perfection was by letting your wife participate in communal marriage. Which was kind of scandalous to everybody, and he actually tried a, a form of spiritual breeding to try to achieve the perfect godly person. There was a, other groups from Germany, Harmony Societies. There was the Have you ever heard of Shaker furniture? They were a communal society who their founder Anne Lee thought she was an incarnation of Christ, and. Um, she said that the reason humans are in such a, mental, uh, in a horrible state is because of the sex act. And that that was the original sin and the way to reverse the curse was abstinence and celibacy. And because of that they had a little bit of trouble reproducing and they mostly <laughs> died out. Okay. The abolition of slavery, this was one of the major causes that came out of the strongest reformation impulses that came out of the Second Great Awakening, was the fact that there was slaves in a nation that was priding itself on freedom and death to tyranny and don't tread on me, was robbing the freedom of, by the Civil War, 4 million black people. This had become an enormous social and economic problem. In the South, people lived in fear that there would be a black uprising. And in 1931, a man by the name of Nat Turner, who saw himself as a Christian-led uh, uprising that killed several slave owners, and this just made the whites terrified. And near as I can tell, as the, white, as the southerners, slave owners, got more fearful of their slaves, they became increasingly cruel because when you have an investment and a slave was a very valuable piece of property if you have a fine if you breed dogs or if you have a very valuable animal you're at least going to treat them well because they're a big investment so for a lot of slavery they were being treated well but as slaves these owners got became afraid one of a slave uprising or two if abolitionists, this crazy group of people up north, got their way and slaves were released, well, our way of life would be gone, our plantations would quit. They hadn't adopted the Industrial Revolution yet. There would be 4 million black animals roaming the streets. We would be, it would be a terrifying experience. So what to do with the blacks? Some people were advocating a colony in... Sierra Leone, we could just send them back to Africa. But a man by the name of William Lloyd Garrison, who was a very devout, at one time a very godly man, had it on his heart that he was going to put, devote the rest of his life to the abolition of slavery. He started a paper called The Liberator. After the Nat Turner Rebellion, people said, look, this is William Lloyd Garrison's fault for he's stirring up hatred and fear and they burned him in effigy. Even people in the north were getting agitated with him. He had his press destroyed. He was, uh, mobs tried to kidnap him. And he was so disgusted with the society. He said, the, the, at the root of this is a church that is closing its eyes to society and a constitution that is keeping them enslaved. So he turned against the traditional church and he turned against the US government. He became a radical. Frederick Douglass was a slave in the South. His earliest memory was at six years old being taken from his grandmother, put in a new home, and watching through a hole as a woman was tied, her hands were tied to the ceiling, and she was beat to a bloody mess. That was his earliest memory. As a teen, he was developing a strong will. The South actually had a profession of slave breaker where someone would come and break the will of the slave, just like they would do to horses, break the will of the horse. He tried to break Frederick Douglass's will and Frederick Douglass fought back and struck this man. His name was Bussy. He, Bussy was so taken aback by this that he let Frederick go and he didn't tell anybody because his reputation as being a slave breaker would be ruined, which was good for Frederick because he would have been killed. A free black woman sold some furniture, <coughs> bought a disguise for Frederick Douglass, and he fled north to freedom. He published a book about his experiences as a slave in which he named his owner, his previous owner. His friends read the manuscript and said, you can't, you can't publish this because you're going to, your owner's gonna find out where you are. He fled to England, where he was so amazed to find a society where he wasn't looked at like garbage, where racism relative to what he grew up in the in the U.S. North and South was gone. Some friends of his there bought his freedom, and he came back. He traveled with William Lloyd Garrison, urging slavery, urging against slavery. There was also a woman named Angela Grimke, who was a slave owner in the South. But she was so disgusted by what she was doing, she couldn't handle anymore. She moved north and she wrote a book called Slavery As It Really Is, at how sometimes these owners for dinner parties would have to borrow their neighbor's slave because their own slave was so disfigured from abuse that they'd have to have a a slave over that was respectable. Angela Grimke fell in love with Theodore Weld, who was saved at a Finney revival. Theodore Weld, became another major voice against slavery. There was also Arthur and Lewis Tappan who had made their money in, it made, become millionaires, and they were paying for a lot of these publications. They paid for Finney to take over Oberlin College, which was, had separated from Lyman Beecher's college because these students were so passionate to free the slaves and their previous seminary didn't agree with abolition. So these were some of the driving characters In 19, I think it was 1920, there was an equal number of slave states in the Congress and free states. The South wanted to keep that or gain, the, gain the, the victory because they thought if we are outnumbered in the Senate, this abolitionist movement is going to lead to our losing our slavery. So there was the Missouri Compromise that said Missouri could enter the Union as a slave state, but anything lower than whichever parallel was right below Missouri. Any future state would be a slave state, and any future state that was in the North could enter the Union as a free state. When the United States, when Texas declared independence, the United States tried to annex Texas, which means bring Texas into the Union, and the people up north were upset about this because they thought, well, Texas is below this parallel. Texas is going to enter as a slave state, and slavery is going to be more entrenched in Congress than ever before. But then, as things progressed, and there was the gold rush in California, which there was such a mass migration that it was impossible to find it was almost impossible to find a ship sailing from California back to New York, because people would get on a ship to sail to California, jump ship, and leave the ship to rot in the harbor because you couldn't contain any of the sailors who wanted to pursue gold. So the population of California grew so rapidly that they were able to bypass becoming uh, territory and go right to state. You had to have 60,000 people, then you could be a state. The United States had already won the war with Mexico, which gave them California. But California wanted to enter the Union as a free state, which made the people in the South upset. So California was allowed in 1949 to enter the Union as a free state, but to please the people in the South, they passed the Fugitive Slave Law, or they added more teeth to the Fugitive Slave Law, that said in the North, any runaway slave one, he has no defense if he's caught, which led to free black man getting kidnapped. You also would be in trouble if you harbored a black person. You were also in trouble if you didn't join a posse to look for a black person. I mean, it was just a tremendous... So this is 20 years after the abolitionists had been rallies, printing pamphlets, and now things look more bleak than they ever looked before. So discouraged that all this effort, and now they can't even harbor freed black slaves anymore. Things get worse. Kansas wanted to join the union with the condition that, anyway, I don't know if they chose it, but anyways, the government said we're going to let Kansas, even though they're above this slave line and they should be a free state, we're going to let Kansas decide if they want to join the union as a free state or a slave state. So the South sent a bunch of thugs into, Can- into Kansas to vote in the polls, and they attacked abolitionist um, publishing houses, just destroyed it. and it was it was called Bleeding Kansas because of the Civil War that was happening in Kansas. A man by the name of Preston Brooks I mean, anyway, he denounced this Kansas and he, he said this is terrible what's happening and he implicated uh, one of the southern senators Andrew Butler I think was his name. You have to check this out. Anyway, this Andrew Butler's nephew was so Insulted, he went to defend his, am I getting the name righty? Heidi? Yeah. Brooks? He Brooks to Charles Sumner. Sumner had, Sumner had made this inflammatory remarks. So Brooks, who was a nephew of Butler, in the Senate, which had people in it, took his cane and broke it over Sumner's head and left him so unconscious it took him years to recover. In the south, Brooks was hailed as a hero and received several canes from the south praising him, saying, here's to replace the one that you broke over Butler's head. Sumner's head. At the same time, there was a man by the name of John Turner, who was a mystic who felt that God had called him to abolish slavery in any way possible. Including, he thought God was calling him to lead a slave uprising. He during this bleeding Kansas episode along the Potawatomi, 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 something. I think I'm putting too many slow. Potawatomi River. Okay, this is really sad, so stop giggling. But he went and he he pulled several slave owners and hacked them to death. See, I told you it was sad. And he went and he tried to enlist Frederick Douglass into this cause of leading an armed revolt. He told Frederick Douglass about his plan. Harper's Ferry, there's a ammunition storehouse there. We will gather our, we'll gather a bunch of slaves, we'll storm the armory, and we'll lead a slave uprising. Frederick Douglass said, look, we'll be as, we'll just, two wrongs don't make a right, basically. And he he said, I can't support you in this. But John Turner led the uprising, he was quickly John Brown, thank you, Nat Turner, (laughs) sorry, Nat Turner led the successful slave uprising. John Brown was the one who I've been talking about, (laughs) who led this uprising, attempted uprising. It was quickly put down by the Virginia militia. John Brown was laid in a cot, and during this time he became somewhat of a national hero and a martyr for someone who was fighting for the slaves. And he was, he was hung but rallied the cause. Okay, I talked about Lyman Beecher who was this revivalist in the Second Great Awakening. He was apparently, they, he was known as the father of more brains than anybody in America because two of his children were Henry Ward Beecher who we'll talk about in the next session who was the most famous preacher in America for preaching against Calvinism and teaching a liberal version of love, but also because he was an abolitionist, and his daughter, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Harriet Beecher Stowe had lost her son, Charlie, to cholera. It was her sixth child, the first child she'd been able to nurse herself, and as she watched her his, Miss Charlie suffer, she actually it got so bad that she asked God to take him, and she was in such mourning and grief, but she wanted Charlie's life to count for something. She moved, they moved to Maine, I think, and a runaway black family showed up at her door and they had a baby named Charlie. She, in defiance of this fugitive slave law, harbored them, and she also had a vision of a, man, of a black man pleading for mercy. She said, I'm going, to turn, I'm going to write his story, and she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which became, was written in serial form at first and then became the best-selling book, I think, of the 1800s, for sure, it was turned into a a stage play, but her book and the stage play moved people's emotions in a way that angry literature hadn't, and there was a whole new sympathy for the cause. There was a horrible ruling, the Dred Scott case, I think in 1857, Dred Scott was a slave, but because his master was traveling in a free state, he thought he should have been made free because he was living in the free state. The Supreme Court, under Roger Taney, said that not only was he not free, Mm -hmm. that no black could have citizenship, that they were not fully human, and that it was not in the power of the Constitution to make there be such a thing as a free slave state, that every state, one of the Supreme Court's darkest moments. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln came to power in 1860, not a single slave state voted for him, seceded, and the Civil War, which I'm not gonna be able to get into. I have a bunch of notes in your syllabus, so please take the time to read that. The main causes of the Civil War were the states were fighting for their rights. They didn't want to have the North interfering with their rights, but it was also really slavery because the only right that was really in question was the right to own slaves. So people who say the Civil War was about states' rights, not slavery, only have half of it true because the right that was everybody was nervous about being taken away was clearly slavery. But the North was not did not join necessarily to free the slaves. They mainly fought to preserve the Union. Abraham Lincoln said that if I could preserve the Union by abolishing slavery, I would. If I could save the Union by keeping slavery entrenched, I would do that too. But as the war progressed The South won the majority of the battles at first, and the North was very low on morale. The South thought if we can just hold out a little bit longer, we'll get Britain to join our cause, we'll have a whole new reinforcement. People defending their homeland always have more motivation to fight than people invading the homeland. This offset the advantages the North had. The North had all the industry, all the wealth, and the population. The South had the better-trained generals and the motivation to fight. So a few years into the war, Abraham Lincoln needed a turning point. And he, at this point, discussed this Emancipation Proclamation, which would free the slaves in all rebel states. Not the slave states that were in the Union, just the rebel states. He says, this will, immediately, this will devastate the South's economy because they will have <coughs> All these assets turn, just disappear, poof, in one. It'll provide a new righteous meaning to soldiers. It'll allow black people to f- fight for us. And it will also prevent Britain from joining the South's cause because there's no way Britain, which was more advanced in the cause of getting rid of slavery, would join a pro-slavery movement. So he proclaimed the slaves free, and as he went, he, he, it became more of a conviction of Abraham Lincoln. But it led to a turning point in the war, and there was a the U, the U.S. basically won won by General Sherman, who marched all the way to the shore and just didn't. I mean, he, destroyed homes, property, everything, and the South is still bitter about it today because war shouldn't be about killing civilians and private property, it should be about attacking military posts, but Sherman did this, but it was right before the election, Lincoln won his second terms, the U.S. finally won by cutting off all, the. sorry, the North finally won by cutting off all the arteries that supplied the South. And the South, they had printed their own money. Inflation had just gone crazy. Their greenback became worthless. And so, finally General Lee said, I just, I can't do this to my people anymore. And he signed the treaty ending the Civil War. (laughs) Ulysses Grant heard his men celebrating and he immediately commanded it to stop. He said, there's no joy here today. Over 650,000 men died in the Civil War. Twice as many men died to disease as died to bullets. More people died in the Civil War, brothers killing brothers, than in World War I, the Korean War, World War II, and Vietnam combined. That's how sad that was. Anyway, the South, the, the black people were ecstatic to be saved. Abraham Lincoln invited William Lloyd Garrison to come, I think it was Charlottetown, and there he saw a sight of this man reunited with his four daughters. They had been separated and they said, look, this is is the fruit of your labors. And to see what he had accomplished after all these years of tirelessly struggling, it was such an incredible thing to see that he had actually made a difference. And uh, he published one more edition of The Liberator, But that four million people were freed because of this, the tremendous sacrifices of people. Of course, the story is not, there was not racial utopia by any means. The Ku Klux Klan came up and during Reconstruction because they didn't have any power to vote. The North wouldn't let the South States have the vote until they were reconstructed, which meant that they granted citizenships to blacks. These were all new amendments to the Constitution that let the states vote and gave power to the central government instead of the states to a certain level. Okay.